Okay, good evening, everybody. Uh, we should probably begin. Uh, I'm Paul Kirby. I'm a research fellow at the Center for Women, Peace and Security uh, here at the LSE. Uh, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all uh, tonight on this chilly evening uh, to this event on measuring progress on women's inclusion, justice and security hosted by the Center for Women, Peace and Security. Uh, we are particularly pleased to be hosting the London launch of this new global index, which you will hear about, the first of its kind, uh, which was created by our colleagues at the Georgetown uh, Institute for Women, Peace and Security, uh, and by the Gender, Peace and Security team at the Peace Research Institute, uh, Oslo, who we also hosted in the same theatre earlier this year for a discussion about our collective work on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Now, our speakers are going to say uh, more about the index, about its findings, and about its intended purpose. But I will just note that it's especially appropriate that we are having this discussion in the midst of the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence, uh, which ran from International Day of the Elim uh, Elimination of Violence Against Women, uh, which started on, on Saturday, until Human Rights Day um, on the 10th of December. So I think you've all been given summaries um, of the index on your way in, um, but it's also available online in full along with the relevant uh, data. Um, and there will be some copies of the full reports available after the event um, as well at the reception. So some small uh, matters of housekeeping before we begin. Um, please can you silence your mobile phones. For those of you who want to tweet, the hashtag is WPSindex, um, so do do so. The event is being recorded um, and technology allowing will be posted online shortly after uh, the event. Um, Jenny Klugman of Georgetown will uh, introduce the index for 20 minutes or so, uh, and then we'll have each of our distinguished speakers offer around 10 minutes um, of commentary and discussion, and then we'll open the floor for questions. Uh, the event will finish no later than 8 p.m. We are expecting um, that Lord Ahmad of Wimbledon, the Prime Minister's Special Representative on Preventing Sexual Violence and Conflict, will join us for the last part of the event and say some remarks um, before we go uh, to the reception, and you will, of course, be um, invited to join us at the reception um, afterwards. So let me just briefly introduce um, the speakers. Uh, Jenny Klugman is Managing Director at the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace and Security and a Fellow at the Kennedy School of Government's Women and Public Policy Program at Harvard University. She recently became a leading thinker with VicHealth, together with Professor Iris Bonnet, under an initiative that aims to make behavioral insights practical and accessible for the Victorian government, industry, and non-profit organizations. And I should clarify that that's the Victorian government of Australia, not the Victorian era government <laughs> of the UK. Uh, previously, she served as director of gender and development at the World Bank and director and lead author of three global human development reports published by UNDP. Frances Stewart was director of Oxford University's Department of International Development from 93 until 2003 and director of the Center for Research on Inequality, Human Security and Ethnicity. Among many publications, Professor Stewart is co-author of UNICEF's influential study Adjustment with a Human Face, War and Underdevelopment and Horizontal Inequalities and Conflicts. <coughs> Francis has been a consultant for early human development reports, president of the Human Development and Capability Association, President of the British and Irish Development Studies Association, Chair of the United Nations Committee on Development Policy, and Vice Chair of the Board of International Food Policy Research Institute. Third, Gary Darmstadt is Associate Dean for Maternal and Child Health 
and Professor of Neonatal and Development Pediatrics in the Department of Pediatrics at Stanford University's School of Medicine. Previously, uh, Dr. Darmstadt was Senior Fellow in the Global Development Program at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he led a cross-foundation initiative on women, girls, and gender, assessing how addressing gender inequalities and empowering women and girls leads to improved gender equality as well as improved health and development outcomes. Prior to this role, Gary also served as the Gates Foundation's Director of Family Health, leading strategy development and implementation across nutrition, family planning, and maternal, newborn, and child health. And finally, Anita Raj is a Tatar Chancellor Professor of Medicine and the Director of UC San Diego's Center on Gender Equity and Health in the Department of Medicine there. She is also a Professor of Education Studies in the Division of Social Sciences. Trained as a developmental psychologist, Professor Raj's research includes epidemiological and qualitative assessment of gendered social and cultural vulnerabilities for reproductive, maternal, neonatal, child and adolescent health concerns across national settings, assessment of the etiology and public health impact of gender inequities, and the application of social and behavioral theories, including gender theories, for measurement, development, and evaluation research. And they will speak in that order. So please join me in welcoming uh, Jenny. Thank you, Paul, and thanks very much to our colleagues at the LSE for hosting us here today and to our esteemed panel. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, My aim this evening is to flag the main headlines from this new report, show you how the index can be useful to your study and to your work, and hopefully leave the room as excited as we are about this new Women, Peace and Security Index. Let me start by just showing you what's in the index. The report itself we kept as slim and accessible as possible. Uh, You'll see that the executive summary is only seven pages, including pictures, uh, so very much designed for the busy policymaker, minister or student. Uh, And then the report itself has three chapters. The first motivates the introduction um, of this uh, new global index. The second lays out the key results, um, the findings um, and the patterns across regions and countries. And then the third is a deeper dive into security, which is a key innovation of the index, and it's a topic of special focus. So let me begin with the first. Why a new index? There are a growing number of global indices. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the uh, gender rankings published in the annual Human Development Report. For example, uh, the World Economic Forum also Uh, publishers' annual rankings. We reviewed all of the existing indices very carefully and realised that there was a major gap. Gender indices are typically limited to such aspects as whether or not girls finish secondary school or whether they're in paid work. These aspects of inclusion are clearly very important but surely incomplete if it's unsafe for girls in their homes or in their community. Likewise, the existing conflict and security indicators typically focus uh, on measures of um, insecurity in a society, but almost invariably or invariably ignore systematic bias and discrimination against women and girls. So no index before has brought together these dimensions of inclusion, justice and security into a single number and ranking. It's the first index bridging these dimensions. It's also the first gender index framed 
explicitly in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals that were agreed by 193 governments uh, in 2016. So the aim is very much um, to frame uh, the, the agenda in the context of the Sustainable Development Goals and to inform and inspire governments, uh, civil society actors and partners um, to, to take action to accelerate progress. So looking to see what we actually measure. This slide here shows the three broad dimensions that we've captured and the indicators that we use to, uh, to capture these dimensions. I won't go into a lot of detail, but just to say that inclusion has multiple aspects. We include economic indicators, like, for example, whether or not women work, uh, whether or not they have um, uh, savings accounts, um, whether or not they have access to cell phones. We include the political dimensions in terms of representation in parliament, as well as um, uh, an education indicator, years of schooling. On the justice <laughs> side, we include both formal and informal measures. The formal part is about legal discrimination against women, whether or not they can sign contracts, for example, whether or not they can inherit property, whether or not they can go to court. But informal um, aspects of justice are also very important. Here, clearly it's a challenge to find the indicators to capture these aspects. Uh, we settled in the end on a measure of discrimination or discriminatory attitudes towards women at work, whether or not it's okay for women to be in paid work if they would like to, uh, and sun bias as reflected in sex imbalances at birth. And then finally, but not least, on the security dimension, uh, we tackled this or addressed this at three levels. Um, at the family level, in terms of intimate partner violence, at the community level, whether or not you feel safe in your neighbourhood, um, and at the societal level, uh, battle deaths in the, in the country. I'll go into this a little bit more later. But clearly, even once we've decided a kind of conceptual framework for what we would like to measure, it's still difficult to find the actual indicators to use. So one guiding um, set of principles that we wanted to link to the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, this uh, graph here is somewhat difficult to read on the screen. It's actually in page 14 of the report. But basically what it shows is that all the indexes, all the indicators that we chose can be traced to goals and targets and indicators which are included in the set of SDGs. But we still needed criteria to govern the choice of which indicators we were actually going to include um, in the index. Um, an important one, somewhat more pragmatic, but nonetheless very important, was data availability. Is the indicator available for a sufficiently large number of countries? The quality of the data was very important. Transparency in the way that it was collected is very important as well. We didn't want to rely on subjective or expert judgment um, in terms of assessing country performance across these areas. Um, so that as well was one of the criteria that we used. In sum, we're able to cover um, 153 countries, uh, covering over 98% of the world's population. So cutting to the chase now, what do we actually find in terms of the, um, the rankings? Uh, Iceland leads the world in this first edition of the WPS Index. Afghanistan and Syria are tied for last place. The top and bottom dozen countries are shown here on the slide. Um, I won't go into these in a, a large amount of detail. I'd like to spend a little bit more time looking at the patterns across countries in terms of the dimensions as well as um, uh, what we see in terms of regional patterns as well. 
Um, this graph here shows the full set of 153 countries. You can find the exact scores in Table 1 um, at the back of the report. The countries are also listed in alphabetical order. If you're not entirely sure whether your country is likely to fall, it might be easier to find it um, just on the inside cover. Um, but looking across the dimensions, and here I'm showing um, the performance across sub-indices. So for each, um, in order to estimate an aggregate index, we estimate one for each of the different dimensions, for inclusion, for justice and security. And we can see the scores here for each of the regions, for, for example, Central and Eastern Europe, East Asia and the Pacific, uh, South Asia. And the average here is in grey relative to the uh, global average. And one thing that comes out here quite clearly is very uneven performance across dimensions. Um, so um, Sub-Saharan Africa does uh, relatively poorly on our inclusion indicators, for example, uh, relatively well on the justice dimension in terms of formal discrimination. Um, and then when we look across regions um, in terms of their overall aggregate performance, here we see clearly that there are regional differences. These are the regional averages, um, again, um, and two country groups on either in developed countries and fragile states. Um, so we can see that some regions on average perform better uh, than, than others. Um, so Middle East and North Africa um, comes out worst among our regions. But I think even more striking than the differences in regional performance is the fact that every single region has, have, has at least one country above the global average. So it shows that, for example, um, in South Asia, Nepal does better than the global average. Um, that in um, sub-Saharan Africa, Namibia, South Africa, uh, Mauritius, Ghana, Tanzania, Zimbabwe all do better than the global average. Um, so we don't have to point to Iceland and Norway. We can point to countries in the region who are doing relatively well to show the feasibility of improvement. And likewise, if we look at specific indicators, there are countries in every region that exceed the global average. I'm just going to spend a bit of time looking at a couple of the indicators in a bit more um, depth to give you a sense of some of the patterns. Um, one of the, I guess, more innovative measures that we have uh, in the index are the, um, is the measure of discriminatory norms that we use, which is something which has been recently collected uh, by the ILO and the Gallup World Poll. Um, and the question is actually framed, as I mentioned earlier, do you think is it, is, it, is it acceptable for women to work if they want to? So it's quite specifically framed, and here we find... Um, quite significant numbers of men in a number of countries who say no, they disapprove of women working. So, for example, um, the average in uh, South Asia, one in three men don't agree with that proposition. Um, in Middle East and North Africa, 37% of men don't agree. It's, it exceeds a half of men um, in Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Iraq and Yemen. The, the worst in the world is actually Pakistan, 73% of men disagree with women working outside the home. In contrast, um, relatively few men um, uh, reject women working outside the home. So, for example, in Botswana, Colombia, um, Ghana, Latvia, Venezuela, the figures are all in single digits. Here what we show as well are the gaps between men and women. Um, so basically the story, not surprisingly, is that more men than women uh, disapprove of um, women walking outside the home. And echoing what the Human Development Report has emphasised for many years, um, money matters, but it's only part of the story. And our, what our index rankings underscore 
is that some countries do much better and other countries do much worse than what their income per capita rank would show. So, for example, Saudi Arabia falls uh, almost 90 places in its ranking on the WPS index relative to its per capita income ranking. Um, Kuwait falls 79 places, um, Iraq um, uh, 57. Um, of course, what we show in the index um, and in these uh, graphs here is limited to indicators that we can quantify. Um, and it's only a snapshot in time. So what we've done in the report itself is to include um, still brief but somewhat deeper analysis, um, so-called country spotlights, trying to explain what's happening at the country level. So there are cases where, for example, like the Philippines, quite uneven performance, um, some good achievements in particular areas. Philippines, for example, does well relative to its per capita income. Um, it has a number of important legal commitments. It has a, a national action plan for women, peace and security. But there are major gaps in the labour market um, which discriminate against women. Uh, there are also laws uh, which disadvantage women. Um, South Africa is another interesting case. Uh, it comes second in um, sub-Saharan Africa behind Namibia. Um, that performs well on education and parliamentary representation, but there are major challenges, including on the security front, very high rates of intimate partner violence, uh, relatively few women feel safe uh, in their community. There are cases of progress, like Colombia, uh, which does well on certain dimensions, but still has very high rates of intimate partner violence. And there are countries... Excuse me. There are countries, particularly those um, on the verge of slipping back into conflict, where we see risks of reversal, and Burundi is one of the examples um, which we highlight there. Um, since we're in London, um, let's look at the UK. Um, you might have seen that um, the United Kingdom ranks uh, 12th, um, tied with um, Denmark and Germany, uh, just behind Singapore and Belgium. Um, it's better than the per capita income rank, so I guess that's welcome. Um, if you look at the indicators, relatively strong on inclusion and justice, so it's either at or above the developed country average on those indicators. I just gave the example here of <coughs> mean years of schooling, um, which is 13 for women in, um, in the UK. The highest developed country uh, score is actually Germany with 14. When we look across the indicators, the one where the UK does relatively poorly is actually intimate partner violence. Uh, almost uh, 3 in 10 women being affected in their uh, experiencing violence in their lifetimes, which is above the developed country average. Um, these are the sorts of graphics that we have available um, on the website, if you would like to, to refer to those for any of the 153 countries that are included in the index. Um, so let me just spend a little bit more time on the security dimension. Um, as I mentioned, we tackle this at three levels, at the family, the community and the societal level. And I'll deal with each of these in turn. Um, firstly, intimate partner violence. I think by now it's very well known that this is the um, most common form of violence experienced by women globally. 30% of women um, worldwide experience violence in their lifetime, but there is substantial variation across countries. Um, there's an excellent UN Women database where this information is available, and you can find there that the lifetime rates range from as high as 78% in Angola, so almost um, four out of five women in Angola uh, experiencing violence, down to an estimated low of 6% in Singapore. 
What we also um, explore in the report, if you have a chance to look at it in Chapter 3, um, is that rates of intimate partner violence are also typically higher in conflict settings, countries which have been affected by conflict, um, on average about one-third higher. And we review the evidence um, about the sources of this increased risk, um, which include post-traumatic stress, um, increased depression, alcohol use among men, loss of support from families and breakdown of family networks, a culture of impunity, weaker governance, um, and increased normalisation of, um, of violence in the society. Um, and we review the evidence um, across countries which um, trace the importance of those factors. Um, outside the home, we investigate safety in the communities. Um, for the past decade, the Gallup World Poll has been asking the question, do you feel safe in your neighbourhood at night? Um, and globally, two out of three adults feel safe um, in their community. Uh, Venezuela is at the bottom on this front, only one in ten feeling safe. Um, it's interesting as well to look at the, the gender gap here. Actually, Australia, where I'm from, um, has um, the largest gender gap here, so 35 percentage point gap between men and women in terms of uh, feeling safe in your community. Um, the average gap is, is seven percentage points. And then one sobering finding, which I show here in this um, scatter plot, is the correlation between women feeling unsafe at home, or being unsafe at home, in that there's high rates of intimate partner violence, and feeling unsafe in their community as well, um, which is not necessarily surprising, but I think um, a very sobering finding. And then finally, but not least, um, our measure of organised violence which seeks to capture um, insecurity at the societal level. What we do here is utilise a widely um, used measure of conflict uh, generated by Uppsala. Um, it's regarded by conflict experts like PRIO, uh, the, the institute in Norway with whom we did this work, as the gold standard in, in conflict measures. Countries show up if there are more than 25 battle deaths um, annually. Um, most countries in our data set actually show a zero. Um, so 113 out of the 153 countries um, don't record a positive score here. On the other hand, um, there are very high rates of organised violence um, in a number of countries which also have a tendency to relapse into conflict. And as the graph here shows, um, the deaths do tend to be driven by especially severe conflicts in, um, in countries at different points in time. So, for example, now in Syria in the mid-90s, as shown here in the graph in um, Rwanda. Uh, we do recognise that this measure is not perfect. Um, the deaths are not gender disaggregated. Um, it doesn't capture the broader negative costs of conflict, which differ by sex. This has been quite well documented. So, for example higher rates of maternal mortality in areas which have been affected by conflict. It doesn't capture um, uh, directly the um, sexual um, and gender-based violence associated uh, with conflict. So we do devote some attention to this important topic in, um, in Chapter 3. But right now, um, the Uppsala measure does provide the country coverage and the transparency that we need um, for, the, um, for the index. So in many ways, I think we've just scratched the surface with the, with the analysis which is possible um, uh, with this new tool. Um, so we're going to be embarking on new research um, to, to take further explorations. Uh, we can take investigations to the country level um, and look at uh, differences within countries. Um, we can try and do a better um, 
undertake some work to try and work out uh, what's driving the results and, um, and what works. Um, if you look at the website, as I mentioned, um, there are a number of tools there which I think can enable you to begin to explore the data. Um, and as Paul mentioned, the report is there as well, downloadable and free of charge. Um, I'm happy to let you know that we have a... Um, we do have support to continue the work on the index. Uh, the government of Norway and, um, has um, generously supported the analysis and research to date and is committed to um, support the work through to an update of the index in two years' time, which will enable us to track progress um, on, the, um, uh, on the occasion of upcoming major UN events in 2019 and then the 20th anniversary of um, uh, 1325 in, uh, in 2020. Um, so let me um, stop here. We have a nice word cloud. This is a bit of bragging. Um, um, but this is just to give you a sense of the reception to the index so far. Um, we were able to launch it um, at, at the time of the open um, debate at the Security Council in October. Um, and a number of the ambassadors referred to the index in their remarks. Um, there's been fairly extensive press coverage from Reuters, DevEx, uh, the Washington Post, through to such esteemed papers as the Sydney Morning Herald uh, in Australia. Um, so we do hope that this new index and these results and analysis um, stimulate thinking um, and further analysis on these fronts and help to um, identify opportunities um, to accelerate progress on this agenda. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jenny. Francis? Right, well, I'm glad you kept that up because, of course, the first thing I want to say is it's great innovation and is going to be very motivational for countries. I'm not surprised Norway wants to <laughs> finance it. I think Iceland will be running up to finance it too, but I think it's really important index. And so that you have the praise... Oh, the praise has disappeared, but I wanted the praise to be up there. And now I'm going to talk... I'm going to make four points about it. First, I'm going to make a comparison with the Human Development Index and how far it's correlated with that. Secondly, I want to discuss a little bit whether one should have an absolute index or relative index. Thirdly, I'm going to comment briefly on the indicators used. And finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about decomposition. So comparing it with the Human Development Index, um, the Human Development Index is very different. It includes life expectancy life expectancy, overall education levels, and adjusted incomes per head. Um, but interestingly, you get a very strong correlation across countries with this index. And in fact, this index, if you look at it correlated with income, you get a correlation coefficient of 0.6. If you look at it correlated with the Human Development Index, it's 0.8, which is really pretty high. So that's impressive. Um, but not totally surprising, because one of the things we know about human development is that it's powered by women. So if women are doing well, then the human development's doing well, children's health is doing well, and so on. And this is further evidence of that. But I feel that for the future it would be good to compare. In your paper, you only compare it with income and not with the human development index. And I think it would be nice to include the human development index. If you look at the deviations in rankings, as they do with income in this report, you get rather similar results, whether it's with income or with um, the Human Development Index. Very much the same sort of countries turn out to be good or bad uh, in a relative terms. But what I thought was particularly noteworthy, because I've done a lot of work recently on countries that have made big progress over a 
30-40 year period in human development. And a lot of those countries are the ones with really major deviations, positive deviations. So the ones that have made big progress, 1980 to 2014, include Laos, Ethiopia, Rwanda, Mozambique, Bolivia, Nepal, which are all countries that have done exceptionally well on this index. So I think this index is really important. And it's also a sort of positive sign that maybe in the future, Zimbabwe, which does quite well on this index, is going to do well on the Human Development Index. And Uganda and Ghana, which are doing well, they're doing okay on the Human Development Index, but maybe they're going to do better because of that. So I thought that was very positive. Second thing I wanted to discuss was the question of absolute versus relative ranking. And this, the report comes out fairly and squarely. We're interested in the absolute position of women. We're not interested in their position relative to men. Actually, although it says that, there is one indicator which is relative, the proportion of parliamentary Mm. representatives, of course, that is relative. I think there's some advantages for a relative perspective. I'm not saying instead of an absolute Mm -hmm. one, but as well. And I think there are three reasons for this. First of all, take low-income countries. They're really obviously going to do badly on, or relatively badly on, on, say, absolute achievements in education. But the girls may be getting more education than the boys, and I think it's unfair to those countries to say they're not doing well, particularly well for girls. If they are, in fact, doing it, they're just very poor, and they're they're doing better for girls than boys. So that's one reason. Um, Second reason is that, really, when we talk about the position of women in society, we often are really thinking about the relative position. You know, we've had all this discussion recently about the wage gap, We're talking about the wage gap. We're not talking about the absolute wages women get or the employment gap or, you know, how many people on the board. We're not interested in how many people are in the media or how many people are in the board. We're interested in how many are there relative to men. So I feel that the relative concept Mm -hmm. needs to be there. I think it's an important part of what we mean by women doing well. And the third reason is that I think there's some evidence that it's actually the relative position of women, particularly within the household, that determines all sorts of things like health decisions, nutrition decisions about the children, because women's position of power in the household depends on their position relative to men. So if they're earning more income, then the patterns of consumption in the household change in a sort of basic needs direction. The children are more likely, if they've got more education, the women decide the children should go to the clinic when they should go, and so on and so forth. So I think the relative position matters as well as the absolute. Uh, Now, on the actual indicators, just a few suggestions. Uh, We talked about this a little bit beforehand. On the security front, I'm not totally convinced by the actual organized violence. I feel that the homicide... Um, if we could get it. And I know it's not very reliable, but it does seem to point to the right countries having very high rates of homicide. And an example would be Guatemala doesn't have a conflict. It will come out as zero on this, but it's got the most terrible homicide rate. And so I feel that that needs to be there. I mean, maybe it's picked up by people's feeling of insecurity, right. so I don't know. But And then again, refugees would be another mm-hmm. one. Um, I think it would be good to complement... The, some of the political things with uh, you've got parliamentary representation right. but if you could have representation in government that mm. gives you much more sense of power um, then some of the indicators have a natural ceiling of 100% mm. and that makes them not very good indicators because soon you'll they'll have 100% you know like 
uh, mobile phone use mm -hmm. or financial inclusion. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean they're bad indicators at the moment. It means you need to be flexible about what mm -hmm. indicators mm -hmm. you use. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'd like to see something, but I think the others are going to talk about this on health, because health seems to have got missed out mm -hmm. in, the, in your indicator. All right, and the final comment I wanted to make was on decomposition. Um, and you did say something about that right at the end of, mm -hmm. of our future work, and that's really what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. future work. But if you look at... I picked out Australia and Bolivia. Mm -hmm. If you look about Australia, the indigenous girls born 2010 to 2012 are expected to live 10 years less than non-Indigenous girls. Um, in 2011, the female participation in the labour force of Indigenous women was 51%, and non-Indigenous, 71%. You know, there's a huge difference, and I think we need to really explore those differences. You look at Bolivia, the average years of schooling of women who are Indigenous, 4.4, non-Indigenous, twice that. 8.8. Um, female employment of the indigenous uh, girls, 11%. Non-indigenous, three times that, 34%. So these are really huge and very important gaps. So uh, this is more about work in the future, but I think decomposition is going to be very important. And I think the other thing is, and it's quite tricky to do this, but to be flexible about the indicators over time and be prepared to accept new indicators and not to be thrown by people saying, oh, you're inconsistent, oh, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Don't be too rigid. But I think it's an excellent initiative, and I'm looking forward to the next round. Great. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. And uh, I'll pick up on, Francis, some of your points that I think very closely relate to some of the things that I want to, to talk about here. Um, so part of the reason that I'm here in London is to work with a group. Uh, uh, we're working on looking at the connections between gender norms and health. And it definitely has uh, relations to security as well. And uh, I was really pleased to see that the index includes uh, some measures of uh, attempts to measure gender norms. Mm -hmm. Gender norms are, are extremely difficult to actually measure, and so we, we tend to, we tend to, uh, to look at proxy measures of, of those norms. One of the ones that you chose, for example, was, was sun preference. And if you take so something like uh, sun preference, we know that it has many uh, implications for health, both for men and for women. Uh, where you know where there's sun preference, you tend to have a patriarchal, misogynist society. In these societies, care seeking for girls may be lower. Uh, educational opportunities for girls may be lower. Um, employment opportunities for women, particularly outside the home, may be lower. Their mobility may be lower. Uh, this has big implications for for their own security. There's a sense in, in these societies that, that women need to be protected, they need to be sheltered, they need to be kind of held back, essentially. On the other hand, if you're a, a male in this society, you're expected to be very independent, tough, uh, competitive, and it has implications for your health as well. And so in many cases, in these kinds of societies where, let's say, you have a son preference, um, the life uh, expectancy for men, in fact, is lower than it is for women, uh, kind of bringing out the point 
that in these situations where you have gender inequality and where, where you have unhealthy gender norms, it's impacting the health of all of us uh, across all genders. And th these are some of the themes that we're trying to draw out in the work that we're doing uh, that is going to appear in a Lancet series uh, in the future. I provided that context because it's in the, in the context of, of this analysis on links between gender norms and health that we actually, uh, Jenny was kind enough to provide the, the data from the development of the WPS survey that we use to try to answer a particular question of interest for, for our analysis. The clicker's there as well. You can just use the clicker. There it is. Great. Okay. So we're, we're looking at uh, global burden of disease data and trying to understand what, what we're calling gender disparities in health outcomes looking at this across the life course, as illustrated here, across countries and across time, and trying to understand how can we explain these gender differences in health outcomes, and how can we focus in on explaining that, that differential. Um, so one of the things that we found uh, is that region of the world explains a lot of the, the variation in a, gender in a disparity by gender across uh, various health outcomes, we wanted to ask the question, can we do better? And can we, can we use the index as a way of helping us to focus in on those, those gender differences and be able to explain them? And so that was the context in which we did this analysis of, of trying to understand how gendered social norms affect global health outcomes. Uh, we focused in on comparing, and actually, Francis, to your point, we did use the, the HDI, uh, and we compared a whole series of indices uh, along with the WPS and seeing which of those helped us explain uh, the, the gender disparities in, in various outcomes, and I'll, I'll show you those outcomes, uh, over and above that which we could explain by the variation by region. So that's what our analysis was about. Uh, as we went into this and trying to think about what, what would we want in, in such an index that would help us to focus in on, on those uh, gender differences in health, what, what would be the attributes of this kind of an index? And we came up with this list of, of attributes. Uh, predictive of the outcome shows the variation and helps to explain it. Not endogenous, and, and Francis, to your point, you, you, one of the things you raise is that this index does not include health. Uh, in our case, that was really advantageous because we did not want something that was endogenous to health, and so it really uh, is, a, is a very important tool in, in that kind of a context. Uh, we wanted it re uh, relying on actual data uh, rather than expert assessment. This is a point that you raised, Jenny, that was important in, in the construction of this index something that's easy to interpret, actionable, uh, and available for many countries, uh, and also across time. And in our particular case, where we're trying to look at trends across time, that was an important attribute. So these, these are the various indices that we included uh, in, in this analysis. And as you can see, there are several of them. Most of them uh, are measures of gender inequality uh, in some way. Uh, the WPS um, really is the most far-reaching uh, in terms of its inclusion, justice, and, and security elements that it includes. As you can see, the others are, tend to be more constrained, composed of two, three, four 
um, elements and most of them actually being endogenous uh, when we're trying to look at health outcomes. So here is the data that we found, and just to make this uh, pretty simple, um, along your left are the indicators that, that we were trying to look at, uh, and the first three are really attitudes about the roles of men and women in, in, in various situations. Is, is it okay to beat your wife? Um, uh, are men better politicians than women? Are men better business executives than women? These are the ways in which these questions are phrased in, in current surveys, even showing that within those surveys, like the World, the, the, uh, World, World uh, Health Surveys, for example, um, uh, that there are biases built into the way those questions are asked. And then finally, we had, uh, we had self-rated health. Uh, as you can see, uh, by looking at the, the uh, coefficients here, um, with, with the positive one being that more equality gives you a higher uh, index in, in your regression coefficient, uh, you can see that the WPS really performed very well uh, compared to the other indices really across all of these indicators. And then this value here, the absolute value, gives you the additional variation that can be explained um, by that, that, that particular index over and above what we could explain based on, on the regional variation in responses to these indicators. And as you can see, this, this survey actually performed probably better, at least as well as any of the other surveys in terms of, of explaining the variation that we saw in responses in, in uh, the, the inequality across these indicators. So our conclusion was that this, this uh, index really has all the attributes that we were looking for in, in such an index. It had the, the big advantage of not being endogenous to health. Uh, and it really performed at least equally as well in capturing the, the variability in gender inequality. Um, one of the limitations is that it's new. And the data doesn't go far back in time, which in our case was, was a limitation when we're trying to look, look back uh, over time. But as the index is used, that's something that, that you'll all solve. Uh, so Jenny, congratulations. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, contribution to uh, the global armamentarium of tools that we can now use in, in exploring uh, variation in gender equality. So thank you. Thank you. So um, what I'm going to do is uh, comment a bit on the measure from the perspective of the security piece, which I completely agree with you is, to me, a great innovation in this index. So I often rely on the GII, and that looks at education, maternal mortality, and adolescent childbirth rates. And um, some of the struggles I have with that are that it, it to a great extent, defines women in fairly narrow roles. And uh, this notion of security, I think, is one that really speaks to um, an issue that is really meets a broad array of, of concerns across a variety of countries that all women and girls face. Um, so I, I, there's three elements that you included. So let's talk about the first one is uh, intimate partner violence. Well, actually, let me take one step back. Here's probably the biggest reason I think this is important which is you bring up the point that this was developed in time for the SDGs. Mm -hmm. 
and 80% of the SDG of, S, of indicators for SDG 5 we don't have measures for. So this is a really important issue. So for those of you who don't know, SDG 5 is about women's equality and empowerment. And if we don't have 80% of the indicators, there is no way for us to track our progress on this. So I think it's extremely important that we move well, notwithstanding I value the health realm being included, I really appreciate this notion of security and women's ability to be able to, women and girls' ability to be able to function in society in a broad way without security concerns. So the first issue is certainly the issue of, of gender-based violence. And you speak about violence in the home, and um, I'm really struck by the fact that we have this partner violence, um, this reliance on a partner violence indicator, because one, I think it's very good, it's very robust, we're very consistent with it, but two, it, uh, it does rely heavily on uh, marital relationships which doesn't allow for the reality of the forms of sexual violence that many younger girls face outside of marriage. Not your fault. Mm-hmm. We don't collect that data. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and another issue is with regard to that is the reporting. So a lot of these issues come because there's this data availability and the data quality. How do we get reports of sexual violence when it's so stigmatized and can compromise a girl's ability to marry, to... Um, live in some circumstances because there's an, this is an honor, a dishonor on the family. So how do we get that? Um, and, you know, a lot of people speak to this issue that it's a reliance on self-report when you look at the experiences of, of violence and that it's, oh, well, maybe that's not really violence. Well, I, I would argue that to a great extent what we see is, over, is under-reporting. So I think the IPV measure is actually quite important and quite strong in that regard because we are more likely to get a reporting of it and so, uh, and it's less vulnerable to some of the underreporting that we see across other domains. And I would just, and it's, this is a statistic I always share with people. Um, we, some people worry that there can be overreporting. We see ranges of about two to four percent of overreporting of forms of gender-based violence. Do you know what you see in terms of reporting to police? About one to three percent. So why are we so concerned with underreporting of violence when there is so much underreporting to the police when the, at the vast rates of violence that occur? So I, I think that this is a really important element of the index in sort of bringing to light not just that this issue of gender-based violence is important and it's the tip of the iceberg, but that the self-report of women has real value and that we need to be listening to it. So the second issue is safety and mobility, and I was very excited about that. When you first told me about that, I think I was probably most excited about that because we rely a lot on this measure of mobility. For those of you who are familiar with DHS, it's like, do you feel that you can go to the market? Do you feel that you can go to the doctor? I have no idea why you feel you can or cannot. I don't know if that is imposed upon you by someone in your household or if you don't feel a sense of safety to run outside the home. And these are these are issues that we need to understand. Um, one of the big reasons I think that the sort of outrage after the Narbaya case, which many of you may have heard of in 2012, in December 2012, there was a young woman who went to the movies and was raped. And it was a very brutal, ultimately fatal rape. And the reason that people, I think, were as outraged as they were is like, how can you not let me go to the movie, for God's sake, at 8 o'clock at night? And this is the issue I think you're capturing with this one question. And I had not been aware across the number of nations this data, these data were available. I think it's vitally important that we start to know about this, and it's important to get it on the radar screen. So I'm extremely excited to see that. 
Um, and I think that allows for us to tap into what we can't capture for the unmarried or unpartnered women and girls out there. I think it's really important. The last one is, and I, we've gotten to talk about this, is the one that I too struggle a bit with, which is this one uh, that where we have to, we don't have the gender disaggregated data, and we have to rely on the notion of of a conflict indicator that isn't gendered by nature, but that we know conflict is a gendered phenomenon. And this speaks to the importance of being able to collect valuable data from women. And Frances, one of the things you mentioned was the issue of, of homicide. But even that, if we don't have it broken down by women and men, and if we can't necessarily, if we don't, in the US we've been looking at these data for homicide, looking at not just male-female, because we tend to see higher male homicide, but the causes. What was the precipitating incident that led to it? And what we see for women is it's domestic violence. It's, it's, it's very much about the violence between partners. And so it's a real struggle because these issues of violence, homicide, conflict, we simply lack data. And it's, it's political will, in my opinion. Um, and I, I, I just want to, you know, as we kind of think about this, I love this notion, Francis, which I hadn't thought about, about the flexibility of indicators. Because one of the concerns I had with the GII is we're hitting um, universal education in a lot of places. So how valuable is that? And this is so valuable. And I think at this time where we see these reports of sexual harassment, just every country, every place, we don't have standard data for you to use. And I just quickly, before I was coming, was just kind of looking at the data that were available, and I was seeing 20%, 40%, 50% in the last year, depending on where you were asking the question in this country. And could it be even higher? Potentially, because some of these pieces, whether it's the kinds of violence women face, the kinds of harassment women and girls face in the workplace, and by the way, that 20 to 50% was not sexual harassment generally. That was simply, that was not simply, that was solely in the workplace. So I mean, we're talking about a highly pervasive concern. We need to be better capturing some of these issues that are so pervasive in our society that are beginning to get recognized so that we can track the change because, I don't know, Jenny, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but in my opinion, we're going to see it go up before we see it go down because the first step is awareness. And with partner violence... I'm so excited about that piece being in there because it's been around long enough that we've been using it that we're now starting to track declines. So we need to be, I'm, I'm excited about this measure. I love the fact that you're focusing on security. I, I think that the notion of women's security as a key element of empowerment and participation in society, having that be part of the index is really, I think, pushing the field as a whole. And you have done your job and what I think we have to do is now push more for the data to be available for that flexibility to be reached. And part of that to me is next step, let's get sexual harassment in there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, a lot of fascinating themes. I certainly have some questions. We have about half an hour for questions from um, the floor, so I'll take them in groups of uh, uh, two or three. So if you want to sh indicate if you have a question you'd like to ask the panel, we'll keep them relatively um, um, short, and then I'll, I'll take as many as I can. Does anyone have comments or questions that they would like to share? Yes, Andrea. I was um, sorry. I just don't... 
Um, hi, I was wondering if you could talk about when you were doing your averages for the globe or for different uh, geographic areas, were you doing uh, it by population or by country that when you were coming up with your average? Um, Let me take um, a connection if I can, Jenny, and then we'll, if there are any others, and then we'll answer in set uh, over here on the slide, please. And then... Um, hello. Uh, I actually wanted to t uh, ask a question about um, the absoluteness versus the relativeness of the index itself. So I guess the question is posed uh, to both uh, Jenny as well as Ms. Francis. And for a moment there when uh, uh, Francis began to raise um, the question of absolute versus relative, she moved on to the binary between male and women, uh, male and female. But uh, my question is more to do with... Uh, between women and women, because across countries, uh, the kind of violence or security um, issues that women face are also vastly different. So, so like my, my question is that, that just that sometimes uh, is it counterproductive to have like such a broad uh, sort of an, uh, sort of a measure or an indicator which then doesn't go on to actually adequately represent levels of violence uh, or even pervasiveness as Anita talked about uh, in different countries so yeah just that thank you and then there was uh, one just in that row there thank you and then I'll come to you in a second round Thank you for the presentation. I was just wondering, uh, when you talked about women's inclusion in the workforce, um, how come their ability to actually get promoted or hold CEO um, positions were not included? Um, thank you. Great. So if we tackle those three, then I'll take a, a second round. Jenny, do you want to? Okay, sure. Um, so on the regional averages that I presented were population-weighted. So, for example, East Asia, China would have much greater weight than Cambodia or Laos, for example. Um, I think that the point that you made about differences among women is very important. I think Francis was also um, uh, referring to that and talking about the differences between, for example, indigenous and non-indigenous groups. So I think this would be a really important and potentially quite interesting area of research. I think most... Um, uh, I think probably most fruitfully undertaken at the country level um, because then you could actually pick the, group, pick the, um, the, the distinctions and, and groupings that make the most difference, uh, which are most relevant. But you could also do quite crude ones, I think, on a larger level, like rural, urban, or um, potentially poor, non-poor. But I think um, it, it's clearly it's, a, it's, a, it's an oversimplification um, of presenting averages for, for, um, for women overall. And then the, the point on women in management, the ILO actually does um, have figures on the share of women in management. Um, I guess the main reason we didn't use that is that that's very much limited to the formal sector, um, and we know that very large numbers of women work in the informal sector um, in large parts of the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, um, as well as in, in, uh, in Latin America. So... Um, it would be. I mean, I think, frankly, to get it something to do with the quality of work, I would have loved to have something to do with earnings and pay, um, but unfortunately we can't get that for a sufficiently large number of countries, so that's why we stuck with employment. Um, but it, it's very inadequate in many ways. So if in you know, a year or 18 months um, there is much better data, for example, on, on earnings gaps, um, I think um, we would certainly go for that. And that would be a relative one, I think, mm -hmm. if we... We, we went in that direction. 
Francis, did you want to add on yeah, that? Uh, did you want to come in on any of those? Um, well, I can only say that in India, it's big enough that you can do it at the state and the regional level, which is, is nice. But unfortunately, I think for many nations, it would be hard to have very minute variation. Um, but you can at the, some of the pieces of the indicators, right? I mean, there's ways you mm -hmm. could do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Great. So I have in the, in the pink top and in the middle. Thanks very much. Um, yes, yeah, so a big congratulations. We're very excited about this index. Um, my name is Susie Madigan. I'm from Care International. We're an NGO uh, which does a lot of work on women's economic empowerment. Uh, we've been having some interesting discussions with Jenny about looking at women's economic empowerment in fragile and conflict-affected states. So I just wanted to have, um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more, Jenny, um, and, and with other people maybe chipping in, about um, what was the effect that you saw uh, on security of women with regards to increased financial inclusion? So were those effects sometimes positive or negative and depending on the, on the country, I'm sure. Thanks. Thanks. And then the row in front in the middle in the scarf. Hi, I'm from the corporate world. I, I work for MasterCard and run all of the businesses outside America across 200 markets. Uh, we focus a lot on financial inclusion, so it actually links to the previous question in that when we look at these indices, it's very interesting for us in the business world to think, you know, what is the next, you know, what are you thinking about in the next step? about how these indices can be used in the different countries to actually help improve the, uh, the lives of women. And, uh, and we believe that financial inclusion does that, but we think there are many more things that can be done that involve public and private partnerships. And then in the hat, just on the... Hello there, thanks so much for a very interesting topic. Um, my name is Jacinta and I'm doing PhD on sort of similar area. Uh, but I wanted to um, raise the point that um, this is really very hard to actually find documented uh, data uh, with respect to gender, particularly for those of different sexual orientation. Um, so I'm really just wondering how you can rec reconcile your conclusion, bearing in mind that information concerning those particular groups can be, uh, can be missing, uh, in, in many cases uh, almost impossible to find at all. And also somebody mentioned Australia finding in comparison to Bolivia, uh, I find that quite concerning because you're talking about a South American country that has been subjected to poverty, to conflict, um, and excluded by the American and North American neighbors. So um, to really uh, include country like that, mention a country like that in the same breath as Australia or any other Western country is very, um, um, is, uh, you know, it, it's, it shouldn't, it, that's not um, uh, uh, relevant or it's not really appropriate to do that. Um, and that also um, 
uh, uh, I can also mention other African countries that has been raised here uh, um, and included in the overall findings. Uh, there are numerous other factors concerning all these countries that have been subjected to um, severe colonialism as well as post-colonial uh, um, um, da damages um, to look at them on that kind of you know, surface, uh, compare them to um, other Western countries without actually delving into other numerous other factors and issues, not to mention cultural issues, um, um, ethnicity issues, um, as well as, as I said, colonial factors that would have significant impact on any findings in relation to security of women um, and, and so on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, sure. Um, well, thank you. And um, CARE is doing great work um, in, in a number of countries, and we've had some interesting discussions about the programs in, um, uh, in particular on the, on the financial inclusion side. We didn't look at this in any degree of depth in the actual index report, but I think there's um, accumulating evidence about the importance of um, financial accounts for women's autonomy, uh, particularly you know, with innovations around digital accounts and, and the privacy associated with that. Anita and I have actually just been doing some interesting work. She can talk about I'll leave her to talk about it, about um, financial accounts actually being associated with lower rates of intimate partner violence in a, in a longitudinal study that, we, that was undertaken in India. But I'll leave that to Anita to talk about. Um, and thanks very much for the... Um, um, for the interest um, on the, um, from, the, from the corporate sector, I think that what this index does, and it, I think it um, addresses the, the final question as well, it's very much painting a broad brush um, and giving you a sense of achievements as well as shortcomings um, uh, across a relatively large number of countries. I think it does provide some pointers um, about sort of strengths and, and weaknesses um, and a, possibly a framework for thinking about um, uh, what you know what what, um, what the priorities might be at the um, at the country level. Um, Anita, did you maybe Anita, and then you can talk mm -hmm. about that. Um, so uh, yeah, Jenny and I worked a little bit on uh, well, we worked a lot on a paper that just got published that uh, is a longitudinal analysis of women's experiences of varying forms of how we defined economic empowerment and effects a prospective study to see if that had an effect on the likelihood of uh, an intimate partner violence episode um, in the past six months moving forward. And we accounted for whether or not they had been they had, had a history of violence. And one of the things that we, we found was that um, actually in the context of India, similar to many other studies that have shown this, um, employment is actually cross-sectionally it's actually related to an increased risk for violence but we think it's primarily an issue of in the con in this context being a marker of poverty financial stress and and other maybe some um, there's more likely to be alcohol in the home that the husband's engaging with but the the interesting thing about it is it had no prospective impact so even though it was cross-sectionally related that was not what the driver was around the likelihood of increasing risk for violence or reducing it. What was was actually having a bank account. 
And what we think is the case is that, oh, it was having a bank account and it was having some control over husband's money. And so that's what, so what we feel is the case is that it's not just about, you can't just give the bank account, right? Like it's, it's not like, oh, if you give the bank account, suddenly there's an empowerment phenomenon. It's the notion that they ha there is an autonomy that can be gained through the bank account, through being able to control how money distribution happens, how they can control their money use, and that, even if it's their husband's money, that seems to be it. So one of the things that we've been talking about is that in this financial inclusion efforts to really think through not just blindly giving accounts out and thinking that's going to resolve an issue of violence, but that deep-seated issues of violence can be affected and could potentially be increased if there's that threat, but at the same time, for a woman contending with violence, having that ability and supporting her to have autonomy through financial inclusion really needs to be um, working hand-in-hand. Hand. And then I'll hand off to Francis. Right. Well, I just wanted to make a brief comment on that because there's a lot of mutual causation going on here mm -hmm. because, you know, having a bank account is something that autonomous people are able to have. Yes. Rather, and of course it also increases their autonomy. Mm -hmm. right. But if they're very non-autonomous they're not going to be permitted to have a bank account. So I don't think we can sort of think of it as a sort of totally separate thing. I agree. And a lot of these things have got this sort of mutual causation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I wanted to respond a bit to the, the, the point about Jamaica, um, Bolivia and Australia because of course I wasn't comparing Bolivia and Australia I was saying in both these countries there are very sharp inequalities that have to be picked up in a good index and I think one of the, I'm, I'm a development economist and I've been one for a long time and, and one of the ways in which I think we are improving over time is that it's no longer just us looking at them, so to speak, in a sort of patronizing and neo-colonial way, but much more people are now looking at the world as a whole and thinking we have a lot of shared problems and we should look at them in that context. And this is a shared problem um, and in different contexts, but the role of women is as important in developed countries as it is in poor countries, we may want to get it in a slightly different way, but it's, um, I think it's a progress that we should put, look at country, the world as a whole and not just look at them over there by us. And it's other people looking at us, which is very healthy. But there is a point, which comes pretty clearly, I think, out of your data, that it is easier to do these things as the countries get richer. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a correlation. Mm -hmm. And you see, if you look at the chart... Um, that uh, you know, the developed countries, generally speaking, clearly have higher inclusion mm -hmm. because they can afford to have higher inclusion. They have somewhat higher justice. Justice is much more evenly balanced. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a sort of way in which these things all go together with development, and that's another reason why it's much... It's, you don't want to judge countries... You don't want to look at, really, Afghanistan and Norway in the same sentence mm -hmm. because clearly Afghanistan can't meet the targets of Norway, but you do want to look at maybe Afghanistan and Nepal and mm -hmm. say, well, look, if Nepal can do so much better mm -hmm. than Afghanistan, mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. very interesting. Okay, did you want to add anything from that particular round of questions? Yeah, I think I'm okay. Okay, I have another round of um, uh, three. So in the um, green scarf to begin with. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for an excellent presentation and great report. I come from a development bank perspective which focuses on economic uh, empowerment, but my question is more from a personal angle. I was looking at some of the numbers and some figures look very surprising, um, and I wonder whether you may, may be able to comment on it. The um, sun bias and the uh, intimate partner violence in the Scandinavian countries is very interesting that the, that the sun bias is extremely low, but the, uh, the, the violence in in, is, is extremely high, higher than Britain, and, and the same applies uh, to the Baltic countries, which, which is um, uh, kind of uh, unusual. And um, another thing uh, which I found interesting is that uh, India and China in this aspect don't surprise, but the um, Caucasus and Central Asian countries have uh, extremely um, high uh, sun bias, but extremely relatively low violence partners, uh, uh, and it's just uh, I don't know whether there is any correlation or not. And just another surprise is Saudi Arabia. Uh, we would expect it to be much lower, but it you know, on a lot of indicators seems seems relatively high. And then I have two questions on the other side. One right at the back. Hello. Um, thank you for uh, this wonderful piece of work. Uh, my name is Yeshim Harris, and I director of a small uh, London-based international NGO. I'm going to be asking a question from a practitioner point of view. I'm not an academic. Um, I do understand a little bit of <laughs> uh, uh, the, the data here. Uh, and this is the sort of thing that we, we look at when we pick up a piece of project, piece of work. But f for me, um, looking, at is, looking at this is one thing, but also I want to know the narratives as well. And I wondered whether there is a, a place in this structure for, for, for the value of, for, for, for narratives. How, how does it fit in? Because they're very valuable for us in, in addition to this, not on their own, but in addition to this. Thank you. And then finally, Neelam uh, down here on the left-hand side. Hi, uh, my question is not so much a question as a comment uh, between what you, you and Anita have written about. The relationship between autonomy, and this is coming straight out of practitioner work in northern Pakistan, the autonomy of the bank account often determined, is determined by the hierarchies within the society. Who owns the bank? Who runs the bank? What is the man's caste? What is his status in society? Who was his father? Who was his grandfather? determines who gets autonomic access to banking. In my research, we have found that women who often are part of self-help groups or microfinance organizations are not seen as a threat to the men. And that's their entry point into banking of some kind, which is autonomous. However, for standard banking, where you're going to a state control or a country controlled bank, very often the men as Partners or co-applicants on the status, on the applicant status, make things a little bit calmer. However, in uh, areas where there's a high incidence of male death and disappearances and gender ratio has been skewed, women approaching banks are almost appreciated because they're continuing the legacy of the men who have fought the war. So there are lots of skewed, very minor dynamics inside these spaces, which when put together, form a critical mass of information that needs to be researched. But uh, it, it looks very nice from far away, but all these microscopic uh, analysis of very small spaces, which can be perhaps grouped by geogra geographies of South Asia, might be a way of which I'm kind of grouping them together. But these minor differences do skew statistics on the larger scale. 
Yeah, does the panel want to jump in on any of that? And then they'll probably have uh, sure. time for one um, more round. I can, I'll just respond briefly. Um, thank you. Excellent set of questions and, and commentaries. Um, the, the relatively high rates of intimate partner violence in, um, in Scandinavia, Scandinavia have actually been referred to in some recent academic work as the Nordic paradox, because on all other indicators of gender equality, and certainly on the policy front, um, they do very well, but they, many of them, um, including Norway and I think Iceland as well, have relatively high rates of, of, of intimate partner violence. And it's potentially higher um, levels of self-awareness um, and higher rates of self-reporting, um, although one would imagine, as Anita referred to earlier, that that would have been normalised over time. But it's certainly the case that um, it, it's well-established, um, but um, why it's higher I don't think is not necessarily um, very well understood. Um, I very much appreciate the point as well about the, um, the narratives um, and the potential there. I think that that could be a really nice way moving forward. We would like to do some country-level explorations, and I think as part of that, um, developing a richer um, story associated with some of the patterns that are emerging from the quantitative data, I think would be uh, very important. And I think that the, the, the insights from Pakistan are, are very well taken. I mean, it's, it's so striking that Pakistan's overall rates of financial inclusion that we capture are terribly, terribly low. It's only 3%. Um, and, you know, obviously very much related to the sorts of factors that, um, that you were talking about. Thanks. And I would just add that uh, it is really interesting to hear about Pakistan. And I think it's always, like, to me, this narrative issue and some of these micro perspectives are always important when we look at these large quantitative studies. Um, and at the same time, uh, it's just a very interesting story to hear about Pakistan because right now in India, where I get to work, I don't get to work in Pakistan, there is this big push for bank accounts. And it's coming from this, you know, there's it, one of the reasons people are really recommending it is because it's going to give women all this freedom. And I do, to your point, it's, I think there's a certain group that's being left behind who are probably a little bit less autonomous in being able to get them. And number two, I don't know that we have true information about how much freedom it's going to get you. I think there is an opportunity if leveraged appropriately. But how to do that speaks to your kind of questions of like, what's going on on the ground to make this a meaningful thing for these women? It is interesting because they often, it's been said about some of the microfinance, mm. which goes predominantly to women, that in fact the men are controlling, controlling it, from it. Yes. and using it to repay their debts and, and so on. And, you know, we did some work in India, and what we found was that it was seasonal labor. So when it was off-season, the way that they would pay back the microfinance, microloan, was through sex work. And so there's all these, like... Mm. You know, you really need to understand what's happening on the ground because that was no one's intent. But if you put regular payments on time, and this is a seasonal labor opportunity, what do you think will happen? I feel that we should draw attention to the fact that there are some very interesting little, they're called spotlights in this report, which do expand on particular country stories mm -hmm. and get a little bit behind what's going on. It's not just the numbers. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the full report is available online. I think we just circulated the, um, the summary, um, but you can, you can download that for free from the website. Okay, I, have, I can see four hands, uh, and we're going to try the five. Uh, we're going to try and take them very quickly because we're getting towards uh, the end. So in the fourth row in the blue scarf. Yeah, sorry. yeah that's you. Yeah. I think it's a scarf. Well, 
close to the front. But. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Hi, uh, Josephine from Gender Action for Peace and Security. Um, thank you so much for the report. I think it's going to be a really sort of fantastic way to bring the relevance of women, peace and security to sectors that don't necessarily sort of see women, peace and security so often, like health and education. Um, but I'm just wondering, how do you see this document um, with its domestic measures working sort of as a complementary document to national action plans, particularly those national action plans that are more externally facing, um, such as the UK and the US? And then just behind you. Okay. Hello. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a really fascinating uh, contribution. And I suppose my question is around... Um, you know, we've discussed, we've teased out some of the complications around financial inclusion and employment. And I suppose my question is around the role of um, social protection in public services as a, as a sort of indicator, as um, gendered um, issues, the availability of which are gendered, uh, gendered issues and that they dispro disproportionately support women. I'm just interested in how that factored into design in the index and, and the flexibility of being able to analyse uh, social protection and public services um, as an indicator of women's inclusion, justice and security as something that kind of cuts across those different um, parts of the index. And then in the black on the, in the fourth row, fifth row down here, down the front. Thank you so much for the lovely presentation. I'm a geography student here at the LSE and I'm looking at how environmental change, climate change affects women's rights and empowerment. And I was wondering whether environmental factors is something you would like to consider for, I mean, the future of this report. And then right in the middle on the fourth row is the last question, just down here, in the middle. Further forward. Further forward, thank you. Hi. Um, I've come to the conclusion that abortion broadly falls under the three categories that are included in the index. So with the security aspect that are you receiving a safe abortion or a dangerous backstreet abortion? For the justice aspect, is it legal to have abortions in your country? And less so in the inclusion aspect, but that a woman has her own choice over her body as a man would over his body. So would you look to in the future to include statistics within the index on the access of safe and legal abortions since it broadly falls under all the three categories who so will presu presumably be the best indicator about the current position of women worldwide? Great, so just some brief concluding Okay, good. Take um, as you can. Well, thanks again, um, and I'm happy to chat a bit more afterwards as well. Um, the, the links in the National Action Plan, I think, is an important question. Clearly here we're focusing more on the prevention pillar and a number of aspects around that. I was in Norway earlier this week and had some interesting discussions um, there about the ways in which some of the insights from this approach might help in um, kind of broadening the approach to, to National Action Plans, which are um, sometimes... Um, a bit narrow. The point on social protection public services I think is very interesting. That could be something I think that could be explored in further analysis, trying to understand what are the, the drivers of, um, of um, the outcomes and the patterns um, that we're seeing and I think that could be an important area for further analysis. Um, we had actually tried to look at environmental factors and somewhat ambitiously at the outset there was an idea that it could capture some aspects of resilience and vulnerability and so on. Um, but frankly we didn't, you, you probably know if you're researching this area, that it's really difficult to get the data. Um, so I think again it could be an interesting area for specific analysis, country level or regional level analysis um, um, if the empirics were available to, um, to inform the work, but we just weren't able to do it. Um, 
at the global level. And um, on, the, um, on the, the right to safe and legal abortion, I think it, it is an important point. Um, we didn't include that among the measures that we had, for example, on the, on the legal side. Um, but I think it would you know, warrant consideration. I don't know whether the, the doctors on the panel want to comment on, on that one. I would just say in, in general, I mean, we've talked about a number of different uh, elements that could be added to the index. Mm -hmm. uh, to your point, Francis, I think with time trying to decompose what, what within the index really is performing well and mm -hmm. is predictive mm -hmm. uh, and, and helpful in, in informing policy and, and programs, as, as what alluded to, I think would be important. My, I guess my warning would be I wouldn't add too many more things to the index. There's already a number of elements, and, mm -hmm. and it, it, it can add to the challenge to interpret mm -hmm. what the index is telling you. Great. Well, thank you for the questions. We're very lucky to be um, joined by uh, Lord Ahmed of Wimbledon, who's the Prime Minister's special representative on um, sexual violence and also Minister of State uh, for the UN and the Commonwealth uh, in the Foreign Office, who's going to say a quick five minutes of commentary on, uh, on the index uh, as a segue into the reception, which we'll have uh, at eight or just after. So if you'd join me in welcoming him to the stage, please. Well, thank you um, very much for that uh, very warm welcome. Um, I must admit, as I walked into a lecture theatre, and it's been a while being back at college or university, it's also, some things never change. The first row is always empty. I always used to make the assessment that those who sat at the back were perhaps those right at the back who would get the thirds or the two twos. The cohort in the middle were the two oneers, and the ones who sat right at the front when the lecturer said good morning and scribbled that down as well were the ones who were going to get the first class honours. But nevertheless, it's a real pleasure to be here this evening. And if we look back in time, it's been 17 years after the adoption of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325. Yet the promise of that text still remains unfulfilled. If I may, just a brief personal reflection. Often when I'm asked the question about being a woman's champion, I wear that badge with pride. And when I was appointed back in the summer as the Prime Minister's Special Representative on Preventing Sexual Violence, I looked at this issue with a great deal of seriousness and also poignancy. Poignancy, why? Because if I look back in my own life, from the earliest role models, I, if I could share a personal anecdote, I used to be terribly shy uh, when I was a child, and I also used to hate maths. The reason I overcame two barriers were predominantly down to the earliest role model, my own mother. I remember many a summer sitting in my mother's, or in our kitchen as my mother was cooking, and she was very quick with figures, and she's the one who got me through the barrier that were fractions and matrices. But she also instilled in me a confidence. I used to remember again as an eight, nine-year-old, there was those times with my mother's friends. There was a lady called Mrs. Chowdhury who was intent on marrying me. Now, this was pretty tough for an eight or nine-year-old that every time the front doorbell and I heard Auntie Chowdhury's voice, I would bolt up the steps and lock myself in my bedroom, only to be then encouraged by my mother to come downstairs. But again, it broke barriers, that powerful role model of building confidence. And I fast forward to where I am today, and that a career in finance 
and also now serving as I do, and it is a great honour to serve the government and my country in public life, had the early role models, those powerful role models, not been there, both through the guise of my mother, God rest her soul, but also the most influential bosses I had in my own professional career were also women. I remember one of them, Kathleen Corbett, when I was serving in, as, in a fund manager in New York, who I once approached Kathleen uh, and said, should I do this? And she looked at me and she said, Tarek, I live by the motto, better to do and say sorry than not to do at all. And therefore, the role of women in terms of my personal reflections, in terms of my own career progression, in terms of breaking down barriers, was what defined my own thoughts, what defined my own priorities. And when I look around the world today in times of conflict and indeed our efforts to prevent it, women and girls, to be totally candid, are still being failed. In times of peace, they are still all too often subjected to discrimination and the worst forms of abuse. They are still all too often marginalized and held back. Sadly, too many governments are still falling short in their efforts to right these injustices. Too many institutions and organizations are yet to put their houses in order. And too many individuals are wittingly, or I accept also at times unwittingly, a part of the problem and not part of the solution. Yet, to strike an optimistic note, the outlook is not entirely bleak. For, for me personally, one of the most inspiring parts of my current job, both as Minister for Human Rights and as the Prime Minister's Special Representative on Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict, is witnessing the determination of those who are working to be part of the solution. When you look at some of the victims of sexual violence in conflict, I've seen some incredible women who don't describe themselves just as women, indeed don't as uh, women victims, they don't just describe themselves as women survivors. They are perhaps arguably the most powerful advocates against sexual violence in conflict. And together with them, there are organizations like the Center for Women, Peace and Security right here at the LSE, and thank you for hosting this event, and their partners at Georgetown Institute. They are working tirelessly to promote, to end discrimination, to promote gender equality, and to increase women's education. But just providing education is not where it should end. It's about empowering women, women and participation in all areas of life. To achieve these goals, it's not enough for governments to say, let's just say the right things. We must also do the right things. Our laws and policies must strive for equality. They must enable positive changes in the lives of women and girls. And holding government's feet to the fire on their gender commitments is essential to make this a reality. And that is why I believe the index being launched today, which will measure progress across the full spectrum, is a very important step towards improving the lives of girls and women. And I congratulate the Georgetown Institute for devising it together with the Peace, Peace Research Institute of Oslo. Many of the obstacles and dangers women face are challenges common to all countries, and we must continue to address them together. However, as I saw in, when I joined the event this evening in the brief, 
question and answer that eyewitness. We must also recognize that progress will be slower if individual countries themselves are not held to account. And that is why this type of country analysis is so important and why governments should embrace them and embrace this index and not fear it. I know such scrutiny can at times be uncomfortable, but I am absolutely determined that we ourselves from the British government will lead by example in guarding against complacency or denial. Yes, if you look around, let's take public life. We should be rightly proud that for the first time ever, our Prime Minister, our Chair of the Supreme Court and Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police are all women. I have a colleague here from the House of Lords. If we reflect, both the Leader of the House of Lords and Her Majesty's Leader of the Opposition in the House of Lords are also women. Yet despite these historical steps and despite years of government awareness and increasing activism, the UK is still ranked only 12th on the WPS index. There is clearly more we need to do to match our ambition for gender equality in this country. Some of this remaining work is being captured in the fourth iteration of the UK National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, which we will be launching in January next year. It may be an outward-facing strategy, but nevertheless, we will work with colleagues across government to complement domestic UK strategies and ensure that gender perspectives are woven into them and when they are developed or refreshed, helping to improve women's inclusion and access to justice, not just abroad but at home as well. And therefore, I do believe this index will help us in the UK measure just how well we're doing that. To conclude, in thanking the Georgetown Institute and Peace Research Institute Oslo for creating this index, I give you this assurance. We will be tracking our own progress. It will offer a visible incentive to raise our own game here in the UK. I end, if I may, on a lighter note. I once recall when I first joined uh, the House of Lords, leading a delegation out to Bangladesh. When I arrived in Bangladesh, I was sitting in a meeting with the Prime Minister, who is the Prime Minister, as she is now, uh, Sheikh Hasina. As we were sitting in the room, the then Foreign Minister, who was also a woman, appeared, uh, Minister Mode, and she came in and said, Prime Minister, I've just had news from Pakistan that we've had Hina Rabani has been appointed as the Foreign Minister of Pakistan. And she said, I've just been also entertaining an Indian delegation led by a member of the Congress Party who was a man. And he commented in the following way. He said, here I am, Foreign Minister, sitting with you, a woman, in Bangladesh. I'm about to go and meet your Prime Minister, who is also a woman. I will then meet with the leader of the opposition in Bangladesh, who is also a woman. I hear now that the new foreign minister of Pakistan, Hina Rabani, is a woman. I then have to go back to Delhi and report to Madam. He was referring, of course, to Sonia Gandhi, a woman. He said, but the strange thing is, I'm then going to go back home, and my wife will say to me, you know what, we're living in a man's world. My response is, not on the Indian subcontinent, we're not. It shows the progress which is being made. And then when we look 
through the prism of perhaps developed countries and developing countries. We shouldn't take anything for granted. Yes, achievements are being made in all spheres of life, but that doesn't mean we rest on our laurels. Therefore, I congratulate once more all those involved in launching this particular index. It is a key development in ensuring that we promote women, peace and security agenda across the peace, across all countries, and it will help us all collectively to analyse, plan and deliver more effective support and cooperation. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that, Lord Ahmed. Um, uh, please join us uh, outside for a reception and further discussion, and please join me in thanking all of our panellists uh, and Lord Ahmed for joining us.